this is Jim Colton, and this is the Driven Golf Podcast. In this episode, we first chat with Jarrett Phillips, the owner of Train PMT in South Lake, Texas. Jarrett and his staff work with a number of amateur and professional athletes, helping them develop speed and train for optimal performance. Golfers of any age who are looking to get after it in the gym and add a few miles to your swing speed will certainly get a lot out of this interview. Andrew Lewis is back this week to share his views on multi-sport athletes and the best angle of attack for deciding what time is the right time to specialize in golf. And finally, producer Joseph and I talk about a big idea for the OWGR after its recent decision to reject live tournaments from inclusion in its rankings. Once again, this episode is brought to you by Flag Bag Golf Company. Flag Bag makes custom golf bags and accessories using repurposed old golf flags. Go to flagbaggolfco.com for more information and mention Driven Golf to receive a free custom head cover with the purchase of one of their custom golf bags. With that, here's episode three with Jarrett Phillips. Uh, Jared Phillips, welcome to the Driven Golf Podcast. It's it's great having you. Man, I'm excited to be here. I always love sharing uh, golf information, golf training, all that kind of stuff. Jared and I have known each other for about three years now. I reached out to you about two and a half, three years ago, uh, looking for some training resources uh, for my son as he was getting involved in the golf space. I think the one thing that really drew me to you is two things. One is you're really actively and heavily involved in training both golfers and baseball players. And that Mm -hmm. was something my son was trying to excel at, at both at the same time. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of the tools and techniques and just like the research that you guys is very much research driven. And I, at the time was like a driveline certified pitching coach. And I know you guys use a lot of those, a lot of those tools and a lot of those methodologies, but just a lot of the data-driven approaches to strength development and, and fitness. So it really drew me t- to you. And I think we've had a lot of great conversations over, mm-hmm. over these uh, past uh, 36 months. And I actually started training, training with you as well, because I was just hanging out in the lobby and figured, hey, I might as well try to, right. try to attack this myself. So it's been an awesome journey. I really thank you for you know, helping my son push himself to greater and greater heights. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep up with him or stay one half a step ahead of him with my swing speed. And yeah, he's going to be getting ahead of you here pretty soon. <laughs> I know. It's a losing battle, man, but it's, it's been fun to hey, father time is uh, undefeated. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in any case, why don't you give um, folks a little bit of background? I believe you have a background in like football and, and track, but just like your approach in terms of your origin and sports and strength development, and then also how you think that train PMT is really different than other strength and fitness okay. coaches out there. Well, I'll sum up my uh, my career. I mean, I, I was a baseball player too, all the way through high school, but got a scholarship for football and track at a small private school. Uh, went and did that, uh, enjoyed it. My goal was always to play college ball, so I was able to achieve it at a certain level. Did my internship at SMU with the strength staff there, stayed on for a little while because working with athletes was always kind of my passion. But that's where I really discovered that development was really what my passion is. And so after leaving there, you know, stumbled across TPI in 2006. And uh, that whole test, don't guess philosophy, just revolutionized the path of my career. You know, at that point in time, everything was a barbell and it was all about getting stronger. And then this whole like movement assessment thing kind of 
really changed the game for me. And so I went headfirst into that, went through all the TPI certifications in about 18 months, and then uh, you know bought all the books from all the advisory board guys, almost like had a, a second degree you know, in, in movement science, which showed me I really should have started as a doctor in physical therapy. That's where I, I should have got my basis there, but that wasn't available. And then um, director of fitness at a golf academy from 2007 to 2012, branched away there because I wanted to do all rotary sports. You know, I was doing just golf at the time and enjoying it. But when you're a, a strength coach trying to make a living and look at an income potential, you know, you you kind of go, well, hey, I could do this in baseball and softball the same way as golf and work with more clients. So we kind of parted ways. I kind of floated around for a couple of years and then uh, found my business partner, Kevin, and we formed the model that trained PMT is now in his original gym in 17 and moved into this location in 19 and have been uh, cranking ever since. So uh, it's been a really cool journey. I've been very blessed. Yeah, I have to say... I was a little bit reluctant to have you on this podcast because I think you guys are the best gym in the country. And I feel, oh, I feel completely blessed that I've been able to find you and that, my, that you're working very closely with my son and he's been able to get to know you guys, train at your place, work closely with the, the trainers that you have. They're fantastic. But it's, I, I sort of see it as like, this is some of the best kept secret in golf, that if it gets out there in the public, you guys are going to be flooded with a lot of business. But like you truly are making a, a huge positive impact on the golfers and baseball players that you train. Like I've seen it firsthand and uh, I, I truly think that you guys are just on the cutting edge. And I think a lot of it is maybe the culture that you've been able to establish. And you talked about all the research that you did in helping kind of develop yourself, right? This really this growth mindset yeah. in terms of challenging mm -hmm. what you know and not being afraid to challenge what you know. Because I... I think what I've observed in the fitness space and perhaps in the coaching space, especially in baseball, as I, as I coach baseball for a number of years, is there's a lot of like, well, this is how this is how I was taught or this is how I did it. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, this is how it's always been done yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. The, the, uh, the big thing that kind of well, one, when we did the whole screening, I also adapted another concept uh, within that TPI model of test, train, retest. It was the retest one that really got me because we would evaluate all these things, flexibility, you know, mobility, strength and power. And then we'd retest and go, OK, some of these things got better. Why didn't they get better? Which pushed me to more education, more learning. And then this, the third, you know, we kind of adapted this. Well, the outcome should be club performance. Like, how do I perform with the club in my hand? So, you know, I got a track man, I got KVS and started looking at that full spectrum. And some of it's on the instruction side. But if I can't, if my workouts don't positively influence hitting the ball more efficiently and, and more speed, then what have I really been doing? And so a lot of the a lot of the golf world does all this workout stuff, but they don't ever look to the end of did it improve performance with a club in the hand? Now, coming from a <clears throat> from a football background. We wanted the 40 to get faster so that you ran on the field faster. And every sport was about speed development, speed development. And then golf, it's like, mm, yeah, speed's kind of a byproduct. Now I think it's more different, but six, seven years ago, you know, speed was not the focus. So it's like, if I'm a more robust athlete, if I have more flexibility, I have more core control, I have more strength, I should swing the club faster. So we made swing speed 
the end goal of, okay, did our performance include swing, improve swing speed? And when we didn't, that's when we bought a Proteus and started doing even more research. And that's why I feel like we're on the, the front edge of this thing because it's like we're really trying to affect swing speed. If I have a high school golfer that can't swing 120 miles an hour or he's getting, you know, progressing to that, then we've got a problem. And so that's where I really think it's driving us to do things that maybe we're dumping things that were done in the past or we're not doing, you know, the same old stuff that everybody else is because that's the barometer. Are you swinging faster and are you swinging more efficient? If you aren't, what's your workout done? Yeah, I do want to get into the swing speed and some of the tools okay. are out there in a little bit. But let's let's take a step back. Just some general questions, like as a parent of a golfer, I dealt with this question in terms of when is the right time to get your son or daughter into strength training? Is there an age that's potentially too early? Is there an age that's too late? You know, I think there's maybe a, a myth that is like, well, I'm going to wait until my son hits puberty and then he's going to start throwing 85 miles right. per hour or whatever. But like right. there, are, there are building blocks that you can build in early and, and really start to introduce these concepts and, and really, I think, build a love for like fitness, health and fitness. Absolutely. So what, what have you seen? Like, what are some of the best practices that you uh, could recommend? Well, this is really kind of a, I'm glad you brought this up because it's totally done wrong in our education system. We don't have PE the way, I mean, when you think about PE, physical education, can I swing, throw, jump, climb, crawl, all these kind of concepts that humans need to be able to do, we're totally ignoring that. So my deal is, is when your kid's six, you should be doing old school PE. My daughter's eight. We've been doing that off and on for the last two years. Now she's in gymnastics, which I think is a great way to develop strength early on. If I can't hang from, a, I mean, if a kid can't hang from a bar for a minute, their grip and shoulder strength is not going to be good enough to swing, to control a golf club. Because the shoulders and the lats and the hands are essentially what connect the club. So I'm looking at like at six years old, you should be doing playground type things like monkey bars. If they can't make it across the monkey bars, let's start there. Spot them as a parent, hang, you know, two, three times a week and then, you know, get them across. Those little small weird milestones as a kid start developing a love because they want approval from the parent. You know, it's six. I mean, you're a dad, you know that. Oh, daddy, look what I did. So when you engage with them to get them across the monkey bars and, and those basic PE type things from six, seven, eight, you know, working on push-ups and, you know, wall squats, like before you go skiing where you want to sit on the wall, can you make a minute? Like, I, like they've got to develop some fundamental movement abilities first. So I would start at like six years old. And so that's where I would say it begins would be six, you know, and be doing those kind of things and working to pull-ups, push-ups, you know, squats, things like that. Not with barbells, but just being able to manage your body. Yeah, weight. exactly. And I think some of that's lost, I think, in this day and age where there's, you know, when I was growing up, like, yeah, you just rode your bike everywhere. You figured out a game with right. the neighborhood kids and you're right. getting a lot of that athletic activity. Yeah, just just pick up, playing pickup athletic sprinting, going out and playing home run derby with a wiffle ball with no rules. There's no, there's no batting instruction. It's like, Hey, see this ball hit it, Yeah. you know, because if from six to eight years old, there's so much self-discovery within the movement system that the more of free play you have and less organized play, the more that they'll self-discover and they'll develop fundamental strength. 
So I, I would say to start. And then, you know, formal exercise, eight, nine years old, depending on how how well the kid is with it mentally. You know, if they're starting, if they're very kind of spatial aware and they can do things, then I would start working on more specifics, pull-ups, push-ups, you know, med ball things where they're, you take a four pound med ball, make them sit up and throw it a long way. Make them, you know, launch it to you like a shot put. Make them throw it like a discus. Those kind of ballistic things when they're younger, they don't need super heavy things. They need a lot of like repetition and like endurance work in it. So I would say, you know, push-ups, pull-ups, med ball type things, jumping, hopping, skipping, jumping rope. Actually, there we go. Jumping rope, pull-ups, push-ups, med ball type stuff. There's your eight, nine, 10, 10 years old kind of thing. And then I, you know, the gym starts to come by 12. Yes, we should be like thinking about some gym work, you know, around 12 years old is when we start like doing athletic development. Again, it's not super heavy. We're not compressing the spine with barbells. It's a lot of dumbbells, cables, and med balls, bands, things like that. But you want to start building strength three-dimensionally because everything we seem to do now is sitting and running. It's all linear. Mm -hmm. But yet we want to swing these rotational devices. So grip work, shoulder work, shoulder diagonal movements, things like that. We need to start doing that somewhere around 12, 12 years old if you if you want to build you know, athletic golfer. You asked a question you know, about multi-sport athletes. And one of the biggest misconceptions, oh, Patrick Mahomes played multi-sport. Well, the guy's an exception. He has built-in, God-given, massive ability of power. If you have power, then yeah, you can just play sports year-round. But we evaluate this and 60 to 70% of kids are underpowered. They're not strong enough and they don't have enough power. So you have to develop that. And the way you develop it is, is through exercise training. So when, when the kids are younger and you said just these basic kind of push-up, pull-up and wall sits and med ball tosses, I think as a parent, what I would say is just like do it alongside them. Yes. Make it, make it a group activity. Make it a game. Right. Yes. And make it fun. Right. You don't, you yeah. don't have to be like the trainer, like screaming right. in their ear at the time and say, Hey, I'm going to do it. I'm, you know, I want to, I want to see how far I can throw this ball too. Right. I want to see if I can outplank you or whatever. Yes. Yes. And, and that's a, it's a great thing. If you just got a tape measure from Home Depot, you know, just the, the long one that goes like hundred feet, put the tape measure down and ask them how far can you throw it and mark it just like you do your, their height on the wall yeah. as they grow and let them try to beat it. Hey, you got 20 throws today to try to beat your last one. And it's encouraging. It's not, it, it, they want approval. So if they get approval from the parent through these kind of exercise games, they will fall in love and want to do it. So the goal as a parent in those early windows is gamify it, make it fun. You cannot make it about training yet. It's fun games that you're kind of organizing in these ways. So that's 100%. Yeah, do it with them. I'm a big believer in the med ball for, for two reasons. One like no one ever threw a med ball with 60% intent, right? right? So it, it really trains you to do max intent, whether it's slamming on a ball and hearing that sound, mm -hmm. or like you said, trying to toss it 30 yards down a football field or whatever. And, and the other thing is, I think, because it's a little bit heavier than normal, your body is going to learn to move efficiently. It's going to find these efficient paths. Yeah. And like, you don't, you don't have to necessarily coach that no, up. No, you don't. Like, Just let them, let them go. Even if they yeah. do it wrong for three weeks, at that age, they're trying to discover where efficient is. And so that movement variability actually improves their coordination. 
So if you try to slow them down and make it right, you're going to lose their ability to find and learn coordination. Yeah. I got one other point as maybe a, a soapbox <laughs> item, but we talked a little bit about just building a love for health and fitness. So I, you know, like I said, I coached baseball when, when my son was younger and I see this today, even observing other coaches, or even as I've seen Instagram videos with even golf coaches, college golf coaches. But one of the things that I've seen is like, hey, we're going to have some contest and the loser has to do, the losing team has to do 10 pushups or the loser team has to run sprints. Or like, if you make this putt, then the team doesn't have to do a workout. All of those things, I think, build a negative connotation yeah. towards fitness mm -hmm. and towards exercising. Maybe it's unintended consequence of that. So when I was coaching baseball, we would have the same drills and the same sort of team, inner team competitions, which is great. But I would always say the losing team has to do 10 push-ups. The winning team gets to do 15. So oh, I like that. Yeah. it's a twist on it where you're, you're building in the reward is like, hey, I'm actually getting better because I get to do more reps than the yeah. losing team. I like that because I've always hated this concept of the gym is where I punish you. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I've, I've hated that concept altogether. That's, I like that spin. As you were saying that, I was trying to figure out how could you use it for positive? I like what you did. If you think about it, like it, it is the right way to position it. So maybe folks, if you're coaching young people, put that spin on it. Like I even told my son, like when he was playing basketball and other people were coaching and like the losing team would have to do the sprints, you should do the sprints. Like yeah. whether win or lose, you should be doing, doing the suicide runs or whatever the case may be. It's like, you're actually getting better through that process. And it sets, a, I think it sets the right kind of tone as a leader being on that team say, Hey, you're willing to do the hard work. Absolutely. I agree with you hundred percent on that. Hey, you mentioned the multi-sport athletes and the golf and baseball. Like I said, I first was drawn to you because you were training both golfers and baseball players. Trust me, I've I've heard this all along through my son's development in both sports. Is like, oh, you play golf and baseball? Won't baseball mess up your golf swing or, or vice versa? So I've always been uh, a little bit like trying to battle that myth. And what's your perspective on that? Because they're obviously... There's similarities in terms of being able to rotate fast, but obviously some inherent differences there. I would say it's a case-by-case -case basis because with the baseball swing, you're organizing horizontally. So yes, they both use rotation, um, but with baseball, because the rotation is horizontal in nature, I could see how people think it would negatively affect the golf swing. I don't think the golf swing can negatively affect the baseball swing. I think it only goes one way. And the reason being is <clears throat> when you work on vertical orientation, so like a hockey slap shot or a golf swing, it's very easy for the body neuromuscularly and coordination-wise to go horizontal and swing. When you swing horizontal, you open up so much mm -hmm. to, the, to the object and you're not creating as much downforce into the ground. And so if they learn that first and try to play golf, some kids will try to overuse spin in the golf swing. And it could be negative. But again, it's a case by case basis. Does the kid do it or, do, or don't they? I don't think it's a blanket thing you could say across the board that it is or it isn't. Some kids, if they're more gifted, they will just orient to the, the you know, like your son will just orient vertically and get after it. And actually training baseball because it's a different and the bat's a little heavier, it could improve swing speed for a golfer. Actually, to be honest with you, 
one of the big things I found in my own golf swing was when we had our track man and we figured out that the track man golf could track baseball. If you put it on a plyo <laughs> box, what did we all started doing? We put a ball in a tee. We're trying to hit home runs, see how far we could hit the baseball. And one of my coaches uh, noticed that I was kind of rolling over the baseball and he said, Hey, drive the handle to the ball. You know, like there's a laser on it. And man, I started just mashing. When I went back to hit golf ball, I started thinking the same thing, drive the handle, and it got rid of my casting, and it created much more lag. So there's a lot of weird little nuances that can work one way or the other and all of that. So no, you can't just blanket say it. But in theory, I will tell you, baseball pitchers tend to be good golfers. And the reason being is, is they're working vertically off the mound. So they have that downward orientation to rotation. Whereas hitters, um, I actually have a couple major league guys coming back this week that their seasons are over. And what do they do when they get here? They want to hit golf balls on track, man. So uh, I told them they were hitting these big, just banana slices. Mm -hmm. And I could just see that horizontal rotation. So I said, hey, I want you to imagine the golf ball. You're hitting a grounder between second baseman and the pitcher. And they did it. And boom, 10-yard power drives. So... It's a matter of just some nuances of skill and orientation that you have to kind of find how the athlete is orienting their rotational component because baseball, again, I'm here where golf has to be there. So you just may have to play with it, but there, there's some cool crossover there. And I don't think it's a blanket thing you could say all the time. You mentioned one thing, maybe listeners picked up on this, but what you gave was an external view. Yes that related to something that the customer could relate to and then organize yes. their body in such a way, right? As opposed to if you, if you tried to say like, oh, well, your, your wrist needs to be 10% pronated or whatever. Like that's not, no, that's no, you've got to right? find some simple way to organize. That's in baseball. There's a big argument about that in regards to coaching is, uh, you know, this whole concept I have to feel down, but yet we know that launch angle is what's what's doing it. And so what happens is some players have to feel like they're going down in mm. order to create the upward launch angle where some players have to feel up. So all of those coaching things, like you have to find external cues to help the athlete self-organize. Hey, I'll even tell you, uh, Greg Chalmers came up with a really good one for uh, how much hinge you have in the backswing. He took uh, a swing device that normally straps here, has a little red ball on this side. And you have to like, you know, move the ball when you hit or you can't hit it. He put it on the trail side and he said, hey, I want you to keep that touching that red ball as long as you can down. And so using tools, using orientation, all of those things help athletes better than saying, hey, I want you to bend your shoulder 10 degrees. You got to find some way to give them an external cue. Let's talk a little bit about the process. I think it's unique at Train PMT in terms of when a new athlete comes into the door, there is a, a very extensive uh, in-house uh, screening assessment. And I think what makes you guys different is, like I said, the data-driven approach. You have all of these tools at your disposal, and I think you have learned how to maximize the use of those things in order to come up with the right approach for that given athlete. Is definitely not a one-size-fits-all uh, approach, but you've been able to do sort of like blend this, like, Hey, we've got a group training environment, but everybody's doing their own thing based on what their, their specific needs are. 
as a result of the screen. So can you talk a little bit about the screen process and then maybe we can get into like the gym environment? Yeah, yeah. So ultimately, while all humans can move differently, we all are human. So there's some basic movement fundamentals that every human has to use. Uh, it starts with breathing. So how do you use your rib cage? Then your core, how does your rib cage stack on top of your pelvis? And then how well can you access range of motion in your joints? So while I, everybody wants to use the term strength and flexibility because it makes things simple for them, the orientation of your rib cage and pelvis is going to determine a lot of other things. So one, we have to assess that because if you have bad breathing patterns, if when you were a baby in utero, you were tilted a certain way for an extended period of time, you're going to have variances in how your anatomy is structured. And if we don't know what those are, and I recommend an exercise, I could actually make your body move worse by doing a gym exercise. So I don't take anything for granted. I've done, I've seen too many mistakes by myself early on in my career where I actually hurt people doing regular gym work. And I just, a lot of people don't realize they're hurting people. Like, hey, why am I working out all of a sudden having elbow pain? Well, something in your workout is not going well for you. So that was the biggest thing is one, I don't want to, I don't want to cause any harm or create injuries. I want to know what I'm dealing with. If, if I get an athlete who, you know, has a weak right bicep ability and has a superhuman left shoulder, that's going to change how that player organizes their golf swing. So I want to know what I'm working with. If, if I look at myself like a car mechanic, if you bring me your car and say, hey, I got a, uh, I got a Toyota Corolla here, but I need to run a I need to drag race a quarter mile in 12 seconds. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to need to upgrade the engine. We're going to have to do a lot of work to this car. But a lot of times what happens is people are bringing us race car bodies that just need some wheel alignment or just need an update to their transmission. And so, you know, I got to know what I'm dealing with. So that's the number one reason why we guess. I need to know what you're walking in with. Two is uh, swinging a club, you know, 120 miles an hour is a very, very fast movement. So now I also need to know with, can you deal with power in certain angles and at certain joint positions? So, you know, we, we do our rib cage, we check our core, we make sure you got flexibility, uh, you know, that's the, it's mobility. Then we got to measure power. And so that's where we use the Proteus. The Proteus really revolutionized things back in 2021, because now I could look at power three-dimensionally where the weight room, it was always linearly, laterally, or rotationally. I couldn't do them all three at one time. When we started doing that, oh my gosh, it just like totally changed the game for us. And then the other thing is we retest at 12 weeks. We like 12 weeks. Sometimes people go longer. But if I don't ever retest you, then I don't know how your training plan reacted to your, how your body reacted to your training plan. And if my training plan works, and I will tell you, most, most trainers deep down inside don't like retesting because I didn't like it early on because it exposed how much I didn't know about the body. But for me, I'm in a lifelong quest. I was like, okay, I don't know everything. Man, my client did not get good at that. Let me look up some certifications. Who's doing this well? Whose books can I buy? Whose courses can I go to? And that's how I've amassed my, my certifications and my knowledge over the years is just going, I have to solve that problem. So if, you're, if you take on, I'm a problem solver. Jim, you're bringing your son to me. Our problem is we need more athletic development, more efficient golf swing, and more swing speed then now let's solve those problems. And so we're going to start with what we know. And then as the screen comes back and, ooh, this didn't progress the way we needed to. Is it because the kid didn't do it right? Is it because the training was bad? 
or is it because they genetically just aren't good at that and I got to give them more stimulus? And so that's essentially test, train, retest. And the retest, because we've done 3,000 of these or three or 4,000 of these, we're pretty good at knowing all the big hitting things that we need to hit. But now what we're starting to find is those nuances. Hey, this guy's right elbow doesn't respond as fast as his left elbow. So now we have to tweak the programming. So we have kind of these big like spheres that we put people in, you know, starting strength, somebody new to the gym, they're a golfer, so they're going to need these moves. But then how they respond to the training, we get more customized as we go. So it's not overly customized in the beginning. I'd say it's in the ballpark of customization. But then as they rescreen, it gets more rifled approach. Yeah. And that's building a relationship with the customer, with the golfer over time. I think the one thing that I sort of discovered through this process, having gone through it myself, is you come to this realization that your golf swing is a function of your screen and assessment, yeah. Yeah. right? So if you have, if you have a limitation, like for instance, I got tested and I don't know if it's a humble brag or whatever, but my, my grip strength was like off oh, the charts. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, <laughs> like it actually didn't even format on your report. Cause there was like an extra digit involved or something like that. So <laughs> I, it, funny story. So when Kevin was assessing me, he tested the grip strength and he was recording something down and then I handed him the, whatever that machine yeah, that yeah. tests your grip. And he was like, Oh, Big Daddy. <laughs> so, well, what was it like? Over eighty? It was. It was over a hundred or something. It oh, was wow. like, so okay, yeah, because uh, we have that set to fifty-two as our max that we need, and so you must yeah. have been like twenty, thirty kilos above it. Yeah. So in any case, but however, my vertical leap is like rivals Phil Mickelson. So, <laughs> so you can imagine like my golf swing and my sequencing is very much like upper body you know, driven, like hands driven, trying to get that thing into speed. I'm not using my legs efficiently. Right. And I'm able to generate decent club head speed, but it's not an efficient movement. So, you know, with the programming that you guys had had given me, which I've been kind of tackling over the last year or so, it's really trying to build that foundation of kind of the single leg strength and being able to, you know, start there and then incorporated up the chain such that all these things are building on top of each other. So can you talk a little bit about just like the basic 101, like efficient movement using the ground effectively in the golf swing? Yeah, because ultimately you have to use the ground, transfer force across your torso, your core, into your shoulders and out to your hands. So each one of those has to be a power source. If your power source is imbalanced, great legs, low upper body, you're going to have a swing type because regardless of how much you practice the golf swing, you're doing it super fast and it's built upon the prerequisites of what you can produce with your body. I got into a little bit of a game where I would Proteus test people first and grip test and then tell them how their swing's going to be. And I had some dads like just floored because I said, oh, your kid hits it like, you know, a hard pull left straight or like a, you know, kind of blocked fade. And he's like, how did you know that? And I said, because of what physical tools you're bringing, your golf swing is going to be a manifestation of the physical tools you're bringing to the swing. I don't care how much you practice. If you have weak grip, your brain has to like work around that in the swing. The workarounds are going to look like two or three different, you know, pattern types. You know, a lot of people don't even realize because grip strength is one they always come back to. They've measured when you're, when the club's rotating, the pulling force or the shearing of the golf club in your hand at a hundred miles an hour 
of, of swing speed, that is 42 kilos of grip strength. So if you don't have 42 kilos of grip strength, then your body's got to find a workaround because if you lag and create that great position and then it goes to create angular speed, it's going to fly out of your hand or you're going to hosel hit it. You can't control it. So what does the brain do? I'm going to start the hands early and then just follow them around. So that's where like, you know, vertical thrust, core torso and core rotation, shoulder and elbow strength and grip strength. Those are the things that, that come into play. And if you don't have those equally, you'll have some kind of workaround swing. And this even happens at the, at the tour level. You care if I share a story about a tour player? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. So um, there's, I'm not going to say his name right now, but uh, he had a win last year and he's one of our clients. Let's say that. And uh, he, he was already fast, 118, 119 miles an hour, but his driving accuracy was 113th on tour, which then resulted in his approach to the green on strokes gained. He was 82nd, but he's top 10 in putting. So it's like, how does he get better next year? We have to get that driving accuracy improved so that he has better approach shots. So he's got more, you know, putt being top 10 in putting, there's not enough room in putting for him to get better. We got to attack the weakest common denominator. So we look at him and basically he has a really weird load in his backswing. And when his load gets off, it causes his timing off and he miss and he has too big of misses. Well, we traced all of that back down to a rib injury he'd have and how limited he was at getting his trunk rotating around his pelvis. So in his backswing, he would tilt, he would slide, he would lay the club off, he'd get into all these weird positions because literally that side of his core was not strong enough. So we've attacked that and improved it. Well, his club speed went up five miles an hour. Now, now he's averaging 123 mile an hour. We weren't chasing speed. He was already a fast person. He got faster because he got more efficient with his body. And now he's saying that he's eliminated his two-way miss, and it's just a little bit of a one-way miss, which he can now control when he goes on the course. So even at the professional level, the guy made it to the tour. He had already had a reasonable season on tour and made money, but yet he was playing with a physical limitation that was keeping him from being a better golfer. And so that's, you know, that's why this whole assessment and knowing what your body is, is just, it's too important. Yeah. And I think that maybe this leads on to the next point is like, that is actually seeing real results in the field. There needs to be open dialogue between yes. the strength coach, the player, mm -hmm. perhaps even the swing, the swing coach in terms of like, this is what I'm seeing uh, on my end. You know, if we attack it this way, you know, I know Andrew, like Luke's instructors, been in contact with you around yeah. Luke's development as well. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's like the synergy of having this team around you of like all trying to rally around the athlete and support them in, in the best way possible. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we, we see the, the coach, you know, TPI champions this as the uh, you know, if the athletes, the car, then the, uh, the coach is the driver. And so I need to know how that car's driving. So I know if we got to work on the engine or, front left tire or whatever it is. So, so whether it's the coach or the player, we always need feedback. We need to know what swing issue you're struggling with. And if you don't know, then that means you got to ask more questions of your coach or look at your statistics. Because if you don't, if you're a golfer and you don't know what's keeping you from scoring better, like you got to start figuring that out <laughs> Yeah, because that, that tells you where to start talking and asking and getting help. Hey, uh, I just want to provide a little more context. You mentioned Proteus uh, a little bit earlier. Yeah. This is like uh, a game-changing 
piece of equipment, right? It looks like it looks like a robot or something like that. It's, it looks it's, like a robotic arm. Yeah, like a robotic arm that you can yeah. move in any any direction. There's different attachments in terms of like the grip attachments, and it it is measuring you know your speed, your power, and your acceleration at all these different angles. And I think, like you said, it's been a game changer for you in understanding like where there's stickiness in a particular movement pattern or where there's weakness in a particular movement at a particular angle. And then you guys can attack that in terms of your programming, right? Mm-hmm. And you've been, you've been like early on in helping them get up, up to speed and providing them feedback and, and development, right? Yeah, it's, it's been a really cool journey with them because ultimately back in 2016, I was pulling on a free motion live axis tricep extension machine, which means when you pull the handle, normally the cable pulley where the cord's coming out is fixed. But when you pull this one, it lowers. So as you pull it, it lowers with you so that it creates an angle against your muscle that's perpendicular at all times. Well, that's what the club does to you. So as I'm pulling on this thing, I'm like, man, I really wish I could find a way to create a perpendicular angle on the body all the way through the golf swing. So every degree of movement, the the force is changing because the cable pulley is one angle. Okay. So I was talking to the free motion engineers. We're like, how could we make this? You know. And during that time, I saw Eric Cressy, who's a brilliant strength coach, you know, and, and probably the best mind in pitching uh, strength conditioning in the world. He had a podcast about Proteus Machine. And as I watched him and he said it creates a perpendicular angle throughout motion, I was like, oh, my gosh, somebody's invented it. I'm buying it tomorrow. So I got on the phone with them and realized what it was. And so the only way to assess movement three-dimensionally is you have to create. So if I'm moving this way, the force has to be applied to get me no matter what direction I'm at. And that's what that machine is. The first machine that ever does it. When you go look at it online, oh, I could replicate all those movements with a cable pulley. No, you can't. If you say that, that means your your, um, ignorance on physics and anatomy is very high and you need to default to people that know more than you. Okay, that's first of all. I'm sick of seeing that online. What happens when I do a cable rotation, wherever the cable pulley is, it only creates maximum force at a right angle. So if I want to get the body early in the movement, I've got to put the cable behind me. And then I would have to move every degree to go. The Proteus does that all at one time. You don't have to change the machine. And so uh, that's what really allowed us to measure. And then we gathered like 500 data sets of golfers, Proteus, TPI screen, KVS, TrackMan, sent it to a university. They did some uh, multiple regression statistical analysis, which is where computers are making millions of calculations cross-referencing. And it determined that there are four to five movements that um, have an 84% variance uh, on swing speed, which means that if you measure those four things, you can accurately predict swing, swing speed within, uh, with an 84% accuracy. That's amazing. That is amazing. That means if I just make you better at those four moves, we're going to get more swing speed. And that 14% variance, that's some skill, some motor control. And I think it's some of these other movements that are just the layers become too complex for the calculation to, to determine. So yeah, Proteus is like a cheat code. Eventually, I think it'll be in every golf course. It'll be in every instructor studio. It'll be something that becomes just synonymous with golf. And it actually is going to, they're going to have to change courses when the world population begins training this way because everybody will get long. Yeah, I'm I've already laid down the groundwork with with my wife in terms of figuring out where the uh 
where the Proteus is going to go in the house, whenever they have the in-house model. When they, when they, they are, I mean, eventually when they get to their next iteration of the model there, they do have down on their roadmap, a home version yeah. of some kind. It, re- it really is a game changer. And then one other thing you guys have, which I think is a bit unique is the, in, in the gym and each one of the racks, you have K box and, and K or K pulley, yeah. right. Which is this, yeah. this eccentric, this eccentric flywheel mm-hmm. training, which I think is really unique. Can you talk a little bit about what that does for the golf swing? Yeah. So, um, once somebody has your basic starting strength, so like I would not give a flywheel to like a beginning weightlifter, but once somebody has some of that basic fundamental strength, the flywheel trains your muscles like rubber bands. Okay. So if I'm going to swing fast, I need all my body working like a slingshot. So you have your anchor, you pull the rubber bands back and you let it go. So your muscles are the rubber bands. So that means they stretch, but they're storing all this energy that then they're going to contract really fast and make. Well, in the gym, we've had to use a lot of different techniques to develop that in the past. You got to do negatives. You got to do isometrics. You got to do explosive work. Well, what the flywheel does is it combines three of those into one motion. So if I'm doing a chest press on a flywheel, when I have a dumbbell and I push a dumbbell against gravity, obviously, as soon as I get it moving, I've actually beat the starting inertia, the physics of getting it moving. So it becomes a little easier through the rest of the range of motion. Everybody knows when you're trying to do a max bench and you get stuck right when you come off your chest is where you get stuck because you're having to beat inertia. With a flywheel, you never beat inertia. So as I'm pushing forward, that disc, that weighted disc on that wheel is trying to slow down so that I'm having to break inertia all the way through the range of motion. And research shows it activates almost two times as many muscle fibers, which is what our goal of weightlifting, stimulate as many muscle fibers as possible. Then the magic happens. When I reach the end of my range of motion and the flywheel reverses field and now is pulling you back, you have to decelerate anywhere between 120 to 160% of whatever effort you put into it. So now I'm having to rapidly decelerate. That's a negative. Negatives is where the muscle's lengthening. It's the pulling back of the slingshot. So now I'm teaching my muscles how to load the slingshot with more weight than I produced and at faster rate, which means I'm going to develop power two to three times as fast as regular weights. And so normally you'd have to combine two or three exercises in a complex circuit to accomplish that. And you could do it in one flywheel move. So flywheels for, I wouldn't say the 12-year-old, but if you're a 15, 16-year-old and you've been you know, doing weight training, I like to say two years of lifting experience. If you have two years of resistance training, then the flywheel is going to make you come alive like crazy. And uh, with adults, I like it um, for range of motion because the other thing we know is to make a muscle longer, to make it more flexible. A lot of you guys are going to stretch lab and doing all that kind of stuff, but that's not going to make long-term effects. A muscle is not longer because it's not strong enough to handle its length. When it gets long, if it's not strong, it'll tear. So what the brain does is it creates artificial tension to keep the muscle from getting long. So when you go have that person stretch you, they're removing your natural protection mechanisms. You're actually more likely to pull a muscle after stretching than you are not stretching. So the goal is to make the muscle stronger at length. Well, the flywheel does that because when I'm doing the negative, it's making me learn how to make my muscle longer, but it's doing strength at the same time. So it's like more mobile. So what we do is we use a lighter flywheel and we don't go very heavy and we work full range of motion. 
And what that does is, is that makes flexibility changes like permanent in a couple, three weeks. Yeah, this may be an oversimplification, but the way that I think of it, because uh, we have the k at home, is mm-hmm. like it it gives you back whatever you put into it and and then some, right? And normally you would never you would never test that in a normal kind of traditional barbell. No, you right? can't. No normal normal no equipment will do it because if I do a bench press with a dumbbell, I'm yielding to gravity on the way down. With the K pulley, you're actually having to actively stop it. So that's the difference. Instead of yielding to gravity or actively stopping it, like you said, I have to slow down whatever I put into it. Yeah, and maybe people don't realize it, but the way to visualize this is like you're you're much stronger eccentrically than you are concentrically. So if I'm doing a bench press and I, you know, maybe my max bench press is 185 pounds, that's the most that I can get up. But if you started me at the top and you gave me whatever, a 200 and you put 255 on, I would be able to hold that up. Like I would be able to resist that at least for some period of time. So you're actually stronger on the way down than you're you're on the way up. But I would never do a 255 pound bench press because I could never get it in that starting position without, without hurting myself. Yeah. Usually to do negatives like that, you have to have a spotter and a person and it's, it's all this rigmarole. Now you can do it with a flywheel with no real danger. It's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. So you guys have all these, you have all these tools at your disposal. Mm -hmm. You have this really thorough strength, strength assessment and this test retest model. You also have what I think is a, just a great in-gym environment. You have this group training. You've got really, I think the best of the best folks that are working for you, just building this culture of just helping these guys and pushing them along. And even the kids themselves, like they build relationships over time and they're pushing each other to new to new heights. That's a, that's a huge part of the benefit, right? Just having this in-gym environment that's uh, really pushing these kids to maximize their development and just make efficient use of their time while they're there, right? Yeah. But one thing I would say is I want to highlight the difference of the gym setting. So when you go into a regular gym, you know, you got one leg extension machine and one cable pulley. What we did is, is we created a workout pod. It's like what I call it, or a station. So each athlete has their own lifting station. So they have their own cable pulley system, their own dumbbells, their own bench, all all the tools they need so that I can customize the plan to each person. So while we may have 12 people working out with one coach per six athletes, each athlete is on their own plan, doing their own thing, going at their pace. So it's not a group gym environment. And that's really what's made the difference where we can accelerate each kid's development maximally is being able to customize the programming but sharing the coach so we keep the cost down. So it's like having a personal trainer that you're sharing, but everybody's on their own plan. Yeah. And you don't have to share equipment. Yeah, it's it's cool. And and you mentioned like the racks and the benches. Like it's very rare that I see folks in the gym doing what I would call like traditional lifts, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot, you know, like the, the K pulleys. And even like, I would say you're using barbells for like, you know, landmines. It, yeah, exactly. Landmine yeah. exercises and a lot of like single like stuff. I, I think yes. that what I found maybe it's due to my program or whatever is I became acutely aware of the limitations that I have when it comes to single leg. And there's been really been trying to attack that. And I've, and I've seen noticeable differences in terms of it. Get, it actually gave me a better understanding of the golf swing having seen what exercises you program. I just look up those statistics recently out of a hundred screens. Only two people out of a hundred will be better on one leg than they are on two. 
So what you're what you kind of came in as is a typical you're weaker on one than you are on two. So I would say that that your experience in that is as an adult, that's kind of the norm uh, with adults is they're just really bad on one leg. Yeah, yeah they're difficult. And then I then yeah. I see videos of you, you know, with the program and you're like the the squat king. Like, <laughs> you no, just... no, Alex actually is better than me now. Oh, really? Alex is like, man, he is super functional on one leg. Yeah. Yeah, my my squats but, are my squats are pathetic. Oh no, they're getting better, man. It just hey, as an adult, it just takes man the the legs just take so much longer to uh, to get there once we pass kind of thirty five years old. It just gets it gets tough. Yeah, I think I I think I'm the pull up king though in the gym. Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey, I think lats are the king of the golf swing. If you have great lats, you can overcome most things. And, and do the club pretty well. Hey, Jared, you mentioned equipment. Do you have any tips for somebody who maybe they don't have access to a gym and they want to get set up at home? We have a lot of people now that are doing that. And I think COVID kind of pushed a lot of people to realize that they can do some of this at home. A cable pulley is essentially the thing you want the most because it gives you the most variety and you can train at the most angles. And there's, I look at it kind of three ways. If you want to do an economic way, you just go to what's that strap and you get their 3D strap handles, and you get the the bands. The bands connect to a door or to an upright, and so for under $200, you can start training rotation. The step up from that would be an Anchor trainer. An Anchor trainer is like having a full cable pulley system at your house, think five all the way to 65 pounds, but you can mount it on a sledding track mount on your wall or to a tree or to a goal post, or to a squat rack upright. And now I've got a cable pulley that I can do strength and speed with. So I think that would be, you know, the, the next tier up. Yeah, you may spend five, six hundred bucks. Yeah, and those, I would, I would add, I mean, those things are portable such that, yes. you know, oh, yeah. for, for junior golfers that are mm-hmm. traveling all summer or whatever, and they still want to, you know, get some work in that you could, like you said, you could post it to a tree or find a post yep. or if they're the hotel has a gym like you can use the the strap on the pulleys that they have there like we, we travel with them quite frequently and he's heard me say this if you touch strength and speed once a week you won't lose it so when you're in your travel season and you're playing a lot of golf you just got to find that day that one day that i can get my movements in and that way i don't lose my my headway if you get two in you'll keep progressing um, but I will share another cable pulley that I found that I actually put in my house. Um, it's through functional patterns. They call it the region trainer. And what it is, is it's like having a Kaiser machine that we have, which are super expensive, but in an at home version. So it's got two arms you can move up and down. And the cool thing about it is it has 12 or 13 feet of cable travel. So we can do all kinds of exercise on there and it just uses plate weights to load it, but it has a six to one pulley ratio. So it's super smooth and it is by far the single best cable pulley system ever found. They started around 2,500, but through the little financing deal, you can get them for 190 bucks for 18 payments. You know, so there, there's, a, there's kind of, you got an economic way, you got an intermediate way, and then you got kind of the cat's meow. If somebody had a functional patterns region trainer, they could pretty much, you know, train for life with that thing. It's awesome. But if you already have a squat rack, I think an Anchor trainer would be a simple addition. I just had a guy do that down in Alito. They're 
came up to get screened and they're down in Alito and they're going to get one for their squat rack they have so this, this kid can do all his rotational stuff. So Encore is a great all-around kind of solution. But I will tell you, for $25 a month, you can join a Planet Fitness. And I've got two junior golfers that they do AJs all over the country and he'll find him a Planet Fitness and he'll get his workouts in because if you pay like 25 bucks, you can go to any of them. So that $25 a month is pretty cost effective for being able to get, yeah. you know, get work in and, and uh, all, you know, you take your, uh, you've got your cable pulleys and your dumbbells. If you have those two things, you can do 90% of what a golfer needs. One thing is success leaves clues, right? So I think if you look at what the best golfers in the world are doing, like yeah. they're attacking the yes. gym, like the day of, you know, they're, they're really treating their body like mm -hmm. it's the money maker, right? They're trying to take care of the body. And, and like you said, not just maintain, but keep Absolutely. pushing forward. Like if you just wait until you have off weeks to do that, like you're falling behind. Yeah. You know, that, that goes into, Oh, if I lift weights, I'll get tight. No, not true. Full range of motion, weightlifting actually makes you more mobile, gives you more control over your body. But two, once you start doing some resistance training, once you're two weeks into it, you're, you're past any typical soreness. If you're a golfer and you're getting sore every time you train, you're overtraining. I could go in there and lift right now within 10 minutes, grab my golf club, go into our hitting bay, and I will hit. I will feel great hitting the ball, and then I go play. Like this idea that you cannot train on before or after playing days is ridiculous. It's just because you're deconditioned, and once you just get a little bit of conditioning, you'll be able to do it. Or you're training way too hard, like a bodybuilder. Like, don't train like a bodybuilder. Yeah, I mean, there's there's periodization, right? So there's you really have to monitor the volume and how much weight you're pushing, you're pushing or pulling, right? And when when you're in season. Yeah, but you could simplify that even more. Like, to, if we really boil this down and said, "Hey, is it? Can anybody just go lift?" Absolutely. If you just took twelve movements and you just did one set. You know, so I'm going to pick one bicep, one tricep, one shoulder up across, one shoulder up, one legs. And if I just did that, you're not going to get sore after you've done that twice. And so if you just say, hey, if I just trained one set two to three times a week year round, for most golfers that haven't done anything, man, that's going to make like two or three jumps before you have to get into volume and periodization. So if we just kept it really simple for the golfers that haven't done anything, if they just do something, they can do that for almost a year before they would need it. Because you think of how long you guys have been training. You're you're what I would call a level a tier three athlete. Like you guys are on the like professional track. Like you're you've gone past all of these basic milestones. That's why your programs are more complex. That's why you you know you've eliminated so many of these weaknesses that now there's one or two that you're really trying to attack. For these beginning people, they almost all their movements need work. You know, because how long have you been exercising? Oh, pretty seriously in one form or another the last 15, 20 years, I would think. Right. Yeah. So 15 or 20 years and you've had a K box and you've had a rack and you've had all that. So see you for you've cleared so many. That's why when you came to us, you had some things that were very elite, you know, because you've been training. But for a lot of these parents with these kids, I see 12, 13, 14 years old and their kid looks like you could a hard wind will knock them over. They can just do one set and see major gains. Guy actually wrote a book on that called the One by Twenty Plan. Doctor Mel Siff, and uh, he saw with beginning athletes, you could do one set and see improvement. 
weekly for almost a year. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and I think it's a bit of this mindset. So, you know, we have junior golfers that are just trying to be right as good as they can be. So I think having you on there and if there's anything that could come, people could take away from this is take the steps Mm -hmm. in the right direction. You know, you may think like a gym may be intimidating to you and it's not something that you've encountered, or you're worried about some of the soreness or you meant, or it messing up your golf swing. There may be some stumbling blocks early on, but like you said, you'll, Mm -hmm. you'll get past that, but it's, I honestly don't know how you could afford not to start pursuing these things. And like you said, having a growth mindset around just asking the questions about how do, how do I improve myself? Um, What are some of the things that are out there? reaching out to you and just asking you questions or even I would suggest like it would be a, a very worthwhile use of time and resources. Like maybe you have an AJGA tournament in, in Texas or sometime this off season, book an assessment, fly down to Texas, do the assessment. You can help them set up remote training and remote program and just point it, point them in the right direction. Right. I think that is a extremely valuable use of time. Like people are paying hundreds of dollars to, get a golf lesson or a piece of equipment or whatever. Like this is an investment in yourself that I think will pay off dividends for, for decades, literally. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you now with our, where our mobile plans are, you know, people can get started for 15 bucks a month. I mean, like I don't even have to see you yet. If you just said, Hey, I haven't worked out at all and I need to work out. Then we, we have plans we can start you on those kind of fundamental plans that will clean up a lot of things that you could even get that done before you even, get a screen or something like that because you know you're going to improve a lot of things just by working on the fundamentals if you haven't been doing anything if you're more an advanced person that you've been training or you know you're uh, you're an advanced player yeah i would say a screen for that person is going to be a lot more beneficial but beginner sometimes just get a plan fundamental plan 15 bucks a month one other thing i wanted to mention and then we'll give out some of the resources in terms of uh, how to reach out to you as we wrap up but the one last thing i want to talk about is you mentioned swing speed Mm-hmm. There are a lot of tools out there. There's speed sticks, there's the stack, there's the rip stick. There's, I think you have all, yeah, the Mach 3, like you have mm-hmm. all of them, right? But like, can you talk about the the benefits of that, the different options that are out there, what you found through experimentation in terms of what might work for a particular athlete, helping point them in the right direction? I think the one thing that I've struggled with seeing it is like how to blend that in in season because these these are very fine movement patterns and i you know i think for my son especially like if he's got a tournament he's been reluctant to do that sort of stuff in season so is there best practice for like how to incorporate some of those things i know like matt fitzpatrick and and others like really swear by that and have seen tremendous gains in it so i think you have to attack it somehow but like what's the best practice around these different speed uh speed stick options here, this is the one thing that I still have not quite figured out. The industry acts like they have. And the guy behind the stack is a brilliant biome- biomechanist. Like, he is brilliant. But I can tell you right now, I have three scenarios and three different professional golfers. One word helped. One word absolutely cost him tournaments. And another one where it's timing specific. And what it is is, is all of the speed swinging tools are end-loaded. So they have a weight down at the end of the club, okay? So when you have an end-loaded object, the tendency to go faster 
is to throw the object earlier in the swing. We discovered this because we do K-Vest on the rescreen. And for those who don't know K-Vest, you have sensors on and I get to see how you're creating speed. I had really good college players go from not casting to casting. And I went, hmm, I wonder if it's the speed sticks. And so as I watch them do their technique, because they're trying to get that radar faster, they cast it. So I this again goes back to this is the individual player. If your son doesn't like swinging them in tournament weeks because he feels like it throws him off, I would 100% endorse that. I But then there's sometimes pros, there are people that lag too much and they actually need to get their hands going more. In that situation, it would be good. The reason why I'll default on global deals to Mach 3 is because Mike has figured that out and has created tools around the dynamic lag that we need to have. So he uses, instead of an end-loaded stick, he uses something called a jet stick. And he came up with this name. It's a golf shaft with a bit of chain at the end with a ball at the end of that. So it has this like whipping effect. So if I throw that early, it gives me really bad feedback. And I know I cast it. And so I can swing that device fast and it actually promotes the release of energy at the appropriate time. And so that's a great default one is the jet stick because you can swing it as fast as you want. And as long as you feel that whip of that, that chain at the ball or past, you're good. I myself like the rip stick. And the reason being is I like in one device to have my interchangeable weights. I don't have to go grab another stick. But I also like the fact that the ripstick comes with a weight you can put on the butt end of the club. I learned that from baseball. So baseball taught us the, these axe bats are all end-loaded, mm-hmm. loaded, underloaded. And Driveline did a bunch of research with those. And what they found was is the end-loaded bat promoted casting. So if I take that science from baseball and look at golf and I went, yep, I saw the exact same thing happen with a percentage of golfers. So that's why I'm not huge on the stack. Um, I like the speed sticks in certain settings and the ripstick. I put ripstick, speed stick, and, and stack all in the same category. In loaded devices. The ripstick has the counterweight on the handle, so I like that a little more. And then I love the Mach 3 tools the, with the jet stick. And I do like the Mamba, which is just a big nautical rope with a PVC pipe that you keep on your chest and you actually have to use your body because most people overuse hands and don't get enough core and hip action. So if I just said globally, everybody should be swinging a jet stick. And then I think the end loaded devices would be for those that can properly do their form and technique. I'd almost say maybe even have your swing coach look at you swing it to make sure you're not doing something or just make sure you're driving that handle uh, so that you're not casting early. And so that's kind of my take on that. Here's the other thing is all of those, let's take Mach 3 out of it. Let's just take stack, speed sticks, and ripstick. They are going to wake up power that's hidden within you that you uh, only with what you have. So like me, I'm a big, strong dude. So you put me on some speed sticks, man, I'm going to skyrocket because I have a lot of horsepower already. I've already got a Ferrari engine. But if you have a Toyota Camry, uh, engine, not even, uh, I get to go back to Corollas because even the Camrys now, some of those have got 300 horsepower. <laughs> you got to go to like a Corolla or something. And if you don't have a big engine, there's nothing for the speed stick to wake up. Does that make sense? A very gifted athlete, like somebody who's just gifted with like quickness, who has never hit the gym, they'll get faster. 
But if you're not an overly athletic or explosive person, they are not going to make you that much faster. They're going to buy you that five miles an hour that you'll keep if you keep doing them. If you want more longer term, you got to build a bigger engine. You got to you got to use the gym. So I think of it like a primer. Those are a primer. They'll wake up some maybe hidden five miles an hour, unless you're an overly gifted athlete or unless you're a dude with a lot of strength that just never it never got quick. I would be careful on how it affects your swing. And if I'm going to default to one, it's going to be the jet stick with Mach 3. Yeah, I, I've done it. I've used the stack. I mean, I think the app is really oh, brilliant. probably yeah, is brilliant, right? Oh, In terms yeah. of how it's designed, it it I had the speed sticks originally, mm-hmm. but like if you're like writing the numbers down or yeah. you know, you're not going to keep after after it, but the the app's going to remind you like, hey, it's been a yes. few days since you've done it, and then you just like speak in the the speeds as yeah. you're going along, and it's recording all your progress. Yeah. So like that that ease of use well, is great. They, right? they have the yeah, the most commercially viable products where they've thought of everything. It just, if the end loaded stick messes with your sequencing, but see here, why did it work for you? You have crazy strong hands. Okay. And you have a strong upper body and it will, it will wake speed up for you because that type of swing pattern, it, it's going to, that you are, you already have the, you have the engine, you have the hands in the, in the upper body. Yeah. But if you have a mess that's overly handsy, it might, accentuate that a little bit yeah that's what i found is like it was just doubled i was just doubling down on what i had already but i I did find if i really focused on the first movement being into the ground Uh that i think i was finding more efficient speed and just trying to remember that and and then on a case-by-case basis then i would say the stack is great for you because as long as you keep within your technique um, i'm just worried about the kids look my eight-year-old daughter i'd use the stack Mm -hmm. because at that age I'm going to let her self-discover and I'm going to let her get after it because at that six to 10 years old, you just need to move something fast. Yeah. Have it gamified. It's more when you start getting into, you know, 12, 13, 14 and you're starting accuracy is hugely important. And I may have some weakness in certain areas. And so the stack may over promote my strength. And so uh, that's what I'm saying. It's just kind of uh, the jet stick's good for everyone. Yeah. No, it's great because I like I'm pretty much a bomb and gouge guy anyway, so I'm not uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not worried about like yeah. oh, I have this super precise game that I I don't want to mess with, right? It's just like right. you know my misses may be longer, but I love out driving my son. I love out driving my friends, you know. So yes. uh, anything that adds to that. So yeah. So as we wrap up here, anyone who's listened to this conversation just realizes the passion that you have for this subject matter. And I think I, the growth mindset is the word that keeps coming up uh, again and again, because you're willing to ask those questions about yourself and challenge yourself to continue to get better. And if you don't have an answer, you will pursue it and test yourself to find those right answers on the behalf of your of your clients and customers. So folks are are moved by you know listening to this and they say, hey, that's currently missing. Like I need to get started. I want to find out more information. How would they go about reaching out to you or just getting more information about what Train PMT is and what you guys do? Uh, our website's the easiest place, just trainpmt.com. You actually see it back there, T-R-A-I-N-P-M-T.com. If uh, you just want some information, click the Get Started tabs, submit a little deal, and we'll follow up with you. We are going to be launching, we are going to have on our site mobile as a main navigation where you can just buy our plans offline if you don't even want to talk to us and you're like, 
It's going to have you a little questionnaire that says, are you in pain, not pain? Do you want more speed? It's going to take you through a little wizard and then you'll be able to pick a plan and get the app and start training right away. Yeah, you guys are great. Jared, I just really appreciate the time. And, and more importantly, I just appreciate the relationship that we've been able to form over these past couple of years. And I really look forward to just uh, being on this journey together as we help my son develop through the game and just help others develop through just all the learnings and, that come out of the work, the great work that you guys are doing. Man, I appreciate it. I'm, I've been so happy working with you guys. I love y'all's uh, growth mindset as well. It's been fun to collaborate. Andrew Lewis, welcome back to the Driven Golf Podcast. This is the Angle of Attack with Andrew Lewis. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great having you. So on this sort of natural journey that we've been on, like we episode one, if folks want to check that out, we talked about the early development and getting kids started in the game. Mm -hmm. And last episode, episode two, we talked about when to start getting your juniors into tournament golf. I think following that same progression, what I wanted to talk a little bit about this uh, this episode is probably when you're when you're starting to see golfers for the first time, you know, probably in that age 11, 12, 13 range, possibly younger. I imagine many of those athletes are playing multiple sports, and really wanted to get your perspective on the pros and cons around being a multiple multi sport athlete. And then also like guidance and input in terms of when do you make that transition to specialize in one, one sport or another? So obviously you've seen a lot of junior yeah. golfers, different stages of their development. Um, some maybe solo golf. Uh, we could talk about some of the pros and cons of that, but then also eventually if they keep progressing in the game, like what, what time is the right time yeah. to really <laughs> focus your time and effort uh, in, in golf? Yeah, I would start with, there is no exact blueprint that someone has shown, right? There, there are good players that have never played any sport besides golf. And then there are stud athletes who chose golf very, very late that were very successful. So I'm going I'm to preface with that. The trend that I'm seeing is that kids are starting earlier and earlier to specialize. I'm talking nine, 10 years old where they are not playing other sports. Um, and, and there's something inside of me that doesn't love that. Um, because to me, it screams that someone is wanting their kid to be like the best 11, 12 or 13 year old on the planet, which I don't think really matters. It's great to, to learn to win at that age, but I just don't necessarily see that translating when they're 15, 16, 17. So does that mean that your kid shouldn't be playing competitive golf at those ages? Absolutely not. Of course they should. It's great to get the competitive experience like we've talked about, but having your kid decide to choose this sport later because they're playing basketball, baseball, football, or, or other sports, uh, lacrosse serves a lot of benefit because of the athleticism that you're creating in that kid that you're just going to flat out lose. You're going to lose it so much that many of the, the developmental golf classes that I see literally have stations trying to get these kids to do athletic moves because it is so important. TPI has done so much research that you're trying to build an athlete. You're not necessarily trying to build a golfer. Now, the benefit of starting specializing early is that golf is just about the most specialized sport. That and something like hockey, 
to where there are a lot of skills that require years and years of development, like speed control on the greens, vision around the greens, not things like ball striking so much, not things like speed. Those things are going to come at later ages are fine. So that's why you do see these kids that specialize early are really, really good because they're basically, you know, beating the curve on those skills. But there is nothing to suggest that a kid that starts a little bit later isn't going to catch up in that area. That's all this is. It's just catching up. And what those kids that generally start earlier losing is the athleticism, which is probably going to translate mostly to speed. To answer your question of when should someone specialize, I would say for most kids, it's going to be uh, the end of middle school, going into high school, ninth grade. Uh, We live in about the most competitive market in the country, North Texas. And that's the model I see. And if you can do that here and be successful, uh, I believe Luke did that. Uh, I know my son Cameron did that at the end of eighth grade. That is plenty of time to start devoting like all of your attention to golf, in my in my opinion. For those kids that have specialized early, I, I imagine some of those kids are just golf junkies. Like and and you see that and observe that and you you maybe have a sense of that, like that was their decision and their motivation. I imagine that you probably see some instances where it's like you said, somebody is more focused on maybe a parent is more focused on where their kid is relative to other kids and thinking, well, if my kid specializes, he can, he can catch that, that boy or girl that's ranked number one in the world or whatever. Yeah. But like in that instance, are you really running the risk of potential burnout? Like, do you see flameouts uh, in your experience where kids that maybe they, they enjoyed golf at one point, but then it became more of a chore as opposed to, in, as opposed to a game? It's not necessarily them it becoming a chore. You have to remember that these kids that early specialize, like I said, are good and that they dominate to a degree early on. And so what becomes the burnout phase is that that is likely not going to be sustained because as other, as more and more kids are coming into the class that are playing and more of these athletic kids are coming in that hit the ball really, really far, and then they catch up on those skills it's not that they necessarily burn out. They just don't win or have as much success at the rate that they were earlier. That's not all of them. I'm just saying the ones that don't necessarily progress quite as well to where it's just not panning out the way that they were thinking. I don't necessarily see, I never see burnout from a kid that a kid that loves it. You see burnout more from a kid that likes it, but has a parent that is very, very difficult where it becomes unsustainable to play because of the roller coaster of emotions from event to event. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think in terms of the benefits of multi-sport athletes, just from my perspective, as you mentioned, uh, Luke played just about every sport growing up, but really was a pretty, you know, serious baseball player growing up. Like when we first uh, encountered, moved to Texas and, and met with you. Yeah. And he played all the, all the way through his summer of, of eighth grade before high school. And he played basketball all through middle school, you know, all through the younger years. I think the benefit from that, not only from an athleticism standpoint, is that each one of these sports, I think, offers something a little bit different than golf, whether it be the team environment, which golf doesn't really offer. But then, then a lot of these kids want to play in college and all of a sudden you're in a team environment, right? Sure. Putting your teammates ahead of yourself or helping them in their development, those sorts of things. I think with baseball in particular, you know, my son, for whatever reason, he developed this knack at a very young age 
where he wanted the ball and he wanted to be on the mound. So I can remember <laughs> just he was the designated closer on these teams. Like he threw fast, but he wasn't like blowing people away. But he had absolutely no fear to be on the mound and wanted the ball and like wanted to be on the mound. So the coaches would just throw him into these crazy situations like bases loaded, nobody out, one run game <laughs> and be like, hey, Luke, have at it. And there's a lot of kids that would shrink in that, you know, in that environment. And I'm not saying that he succeeded every time. Uh, he succeeded quite a bit, right? But just the fact that he wasn't afraid to be in that moment, that I firmly believe that it, that absolutely has carried over into his golf. The, the pressure of the moment, being in contention down the stretch and, you know, wanting to be in that position and actually enjoying being in that position. I think has helped him have success in, in tournament golf. It, it has to, right? Yeah. So I think uh, it's the same as like having a play drawn up and shooting a three when the game is on the line or like getting fouled at the end and having to sink two free throws to, to win the game for your team. Only certain people really want to be in that position. Other people will be glad to pass the ball and let someone else take that last second shot, right? So all of these things are all these different sports are teaching things that are a little bit different that also have some transferability yeah, sure. uh, into, into golf for sure. That's what, uh, if you watch any of the uh, press conferences from the Ryder Cup, that's what somebody asked Brooks Kepka. They said, how many of the guys on the team do you think really want the ball? And he said, very few. Which then Max Homa, after he made that putt on 18, said, I thought about that all week and that this was like my, this is my chance to take the ball. And which he totally just destroy. But he said like that, that he will take that moment from the Ryder cup moving forward to the point, like he feels like he'll play better in majors just because of that. I took yeah. the ball moment. So for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I heard that podcast. It was uh, an interview with no lane up, I believe like the day after the Ryder yeah. cup. So he was, was really hot, processing yeah. <laughs> and digesting, you know, everything that happened. The one thing actually I wanted to talk to you about that is, you know, this is sort of off script, but he talked about, someone asked about like, in the Ryder Cup, can you believe like there's only four balls on the course at any given or four or eight balls on the course at any given time? And there's just like hole out chips and just like 40 foot bombs being made left and right. You know, even like the first hole in the first yeah, match, like Hovland chipped in. And I think Homa sort of attributed it to what he called like hyper focus. Yeah. It's like when you're in the moment and you absolutely have to hit this shot that you you have to like dig deep in and tap into this belief, like this self-belief that you know how to hit this shot and affirm like self-confidence and self-belief that uh, you have this ability. And I think these, these elite golfers, for whatever reason, they're able to tap into this like zone, so to speak. And, you know, they're just processing all the information that they need to hit this given shot. And they're able to execute. I just wonder I couldn't, I was thinking about that this week. And I just wonder if like, is the reason that Tiger Woods is, you know, perhaps the greatest yeah. golfer of all time mm -hmm. is he was able to just tap into that more often than not. Right. Cause they all have this elite skill level, but they're really, for whatever reason, they're displaying it in this Ryder cup under that sort of pressure situation. And maybe week in and week out they're you know, they're not really able to tap into it as much. Yeah. My take on that, especially with the tiger thing, like I think tiger is the greatest because of his level of discipline. Like I don't think it was necessarily because like holding stuff out, but it obviously is hyper-focused, but his level of discipline, like 
we threw out 72 holes was just like nobody else. I have thought about the hole outs and I did play in an event and I did chip in, <laughs> but I had a partner and I was thinking a lot about this. Like when you do have a partner, you think about making short game shots and putts a whole lot more you, because there really is no consequence in most cases, right? Like even on 18 with Max, like Max knew he had to make a five. Like if that was to close out a tournament, he would definitely be thinking about making seven or eight. But in that environment, there is no seven or eight, doesn't exist. So I would say it's probably more that where they're literally thinking about making the 50 footer. They're not, there's no thinking, there is no three putt. Uh, they're thinking about holding the bunker shot. The one with Victor on hole one was insane because an alternate shot, there is more consequence. But at the end of the day, like if you make an eight, you're down a hole. It's not that big of a deal. So I I don't know if I agree with Max on all of that. It was funny that I had just played in a two-man event and I had chipped in and thought about that. But there is something to the hyper-focus. But I think there's also like a takeaway of like, what you think about, what you like give attention to is likely going to happen. So if I think about making more shots, especially if they're like legit makeable shots, it's probably going to happen more. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and just getting back to the multiple sport thing, getting yourself in these sorts of moments, right? Regardless of what the sport may be, right? I think you can tap into that when it comes to golf, like this belief that like, Hey, I've been in the moment. Yeah. I've succeeded in the moment. I'm not afraid of the moment. Like, let's go attack. Let's let's get after it. I think that has to help. And maybe that's the main, you know, takeaway is like these sports can all teach different things, you know, about being a good teammate, different movement types, um, maybe rotating, you know, in different different ways. Um, yeah. But just like the overall athleticism, the experience of being in these sports and the experience of being on a team and the experience of being in the heat of the moment. I think there is definitely some transferability. Yeah, I 100% agree. All right, Andrew, I really appreciate your thoughts on this. Uh, you know, it's obviously something that every parent or nearly every parent has to go through with their junior golfer. And if anybody has any questions, uh, they can reach out to you, Instagram at Andrew Lewis Golf, um, or you can leave us a question at, at Driven Golf Analytics, and we'll try to address them as quickly as we can. Yeah, reach out. Glad to help. All right, Jim, we got a big idea here. Official World Golf Ranking Board denies live golf requests for world ranking points over league's qualification standards. Peter Dawson detailed the reasoning behind the denial while explaining that political indifferences did not play part in the decision. What do you think about this, Jim? I I feel like this is a big idea. Yeah, I think it's uh, probably in need of a big idea or in need of just like some clear you know, clear thinking. My BS detector goes off a little bit when I hear the language around it not being political and purely being a technical reason. I know enough of about the OWGR to be dangerous. And I know that the truth of the matter is they could have accepted these live events. They could have flipped a switch and included these live events if they, if they truly chose to, if they chose to. I know there's been hangups around the no cut events, um, the fact that they have these limited fields, but we know like the Tigers tournament, the hero is coming up in a few weeks. I think that's a 54 hole event, limited field, no cut. And it historically has gotten no WGR points without a problem. 
So I think they're hiding a little bit behind the policy and less around the kind of the overarching mission or forgetting what the overarching mission of the OWGR is. Really what they're doing is trying to rate the best players in the world for exemptions into the majors. The, the Masters get a, has a top 50 OWGR exemption. Uh, the U.S. Open, a top 60. Uh, the Open Championship, top 50. And PGA Championship doesn't explicitly use OWGR in its criteria, but they typically use that to include other invitation, invitations that don't meet their other criteria. If you think of it in that terms, like, hey, we want, when we're watching the majors as fans, we want the strongest fields. We want the most deserving players to be in those fields. And OWGR has the potential of keeping players that we know are good players out of the majors, right? I mean, you look at Taylor Gooch, you know, whether you agree with his decision to go to live or not, he's won three times. He's probably playing the best golf in his life. You know, I know he chose not to try to qualify for some of the opens uh, last year, but he probably is one of the most, one of the more deserving players. And as of right now, he's not going to get in to the majors given this policy, um, this policy decision. I think the thing that folks maybe don't understand, you should spend time on OWGR. It's fascinating. If you look at some of the events that are actually included and rated as part of uh, OWGR, Joseph, I, I'm guessing you didn't watch the Blue Label Challenge uh, this past week at, weekend and saw Luca Flippi win the 682nd ranked player in the world. Never heard of it. You know, this is even better. The uh, Nordic Golf League, Jonathan Goth Rasmussen won the number one tour final in golf this past weekend and moved from 1,218 to 1,044. Wow. These tours have OWGR rankings? Yeah. There's 24 tours that get OWGR points. The Nordic Golf League, I actually found one golfer who's played in 13 events this year, missed the cut in 12, withdrew from another, and had a scoring average somewhere around 86. <laughs> so, My kind of league. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's hope for us. Yeah, <laughs> hey, I'm, a, I'm a pro golfer. And then when yeah. someone digs in a little bit deeper, like, yeah, I play in the Nordic Golf League, um, <laughs> and I've made exactly zero dollars. I do have some issues with the way that OWGR is constructed. And one thing, one thing you need to know, Joseph, maybe folks aren't aware of, is the TV contracts are. There's money tied to the strength of the PGA fields in terms of the number of top ranked players that are in a field that particular week. So the PGA Tour definitely has a vested interest in keeping the live players out. I don't know if that's playing a role in this. They they sat out in terms of the in terms of the vote, but I do have an issue, and it's maybe kind of pro PJ Tour. Is the one flaw that they have in the system is that regardless of what tour you're on, if you miss the cut, you get zero points. So you can miss the cut in, say, the U.S. Open by a stroke. And you get the same amount of points as somebody who missed the cut in the Nordic Golf League, <laughs> who you might be literally eight or 10 strokes better than in terms of your, your overall skill level. So the way that they've tried to account for that is about a year ago, they actually, they actually came up with two different approaches. So they have this strokes gain metric, this strokes gain ranking, um, which looks at how well you shoot 
on that particular day on that particular course relative to the field. Mark Brody developed it as part of OWGR, and he's really the father of the strokes gain metric. You know, so they have the ability to account for the relative strengths in the field and how just your overall skill level in terms of what you shot that particular round relative to the competition. I think in terms of a potential path forward to include live in a way is they should absolutely include the live events in this strokes gain metric. Because think about it for one second. Right now, Bryson DeChambeau, I mean, what, he shot like 60 in an event? He's 137th in OWGR. If you look at Data Golf, he's ranked 25th. And Data Golf has a similar strokes gained uh, metric, and a lot of people refer to it. I, I refer to it quite a bit. So if you beat Bryson DeChambeau, say, in uh, the PJ Championship, it's going to give you credit as a, as a PJ Tour golfer for beating someone equivalent to the 137th ranked golfer in the world. It's not giving you credit for beating somebody who's you know, a really above average professional player like Bryson DeChambeau. So excluding these live golfers from the strokes game metric actually throws the whole OWGR off, the whole rankings off, right? It's not as accurate as it could be. So even if you felt strongly against anti-live and look like, I've watched 90 seconds of a live broadcast since they started the league. I have no vested interest uh, in live, but I do feel strongly that the most deserving players should get a chance to play in the majors. The majors are more compelling when they have stronger fields. And I think for whatever reason, these players chose one option or or another. They're proving like Brooks Kepka proved that he's one of the best players in the world. Obviously through his major win, he's going to have some exemptions you know, that may run out on him at some point, right? And he's going to have to rely on his, his OWGR. Taylor Gooch, that we just mentioned, he's, he doesn't have any status, right? And he's probably one of the 30 or 35 best golfers in the world at this moment. He's 30th in data golf. So my big idea is maybe a small idea because there's actually a bigger idea uh, down the road we'll cover in a future episode. And I'll just leave that as a teaser because I think I think there could be a complete overhaul of the rankings system in general, but we'll, we'll save that for a later date. But my big idea in terms of a path forward is to, like I said, include the live events in the strokes gain rankings. It's going to make the OWGR more accurate. And in terms of these exemptions, you now really have two lists that the majors could choose from. Basically, you have an exemption for the top 50 OWGR and then maybe you create just another exemption category for if you're top 50 uh, strokes gained and you played in a certain number of events, like you could also be included. So what that might mean for the Masters next year, players like Taylor Gooch, uh, Joaquin Neiman, uh, Mito Pereira, they would all be top 50 in the strokes gain metric. I'm just using the data golf as, as a proxy for this revised uh, strokes gain metric. Others, I mean, Dustin Johnson would get in and Patrick Reed would get in as as past champions, but there also would be top 50 uh, in the data golf rankings, even though their their OWGR is, is well beyond that. And I just think like the, the, the majors are better with those players, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like they give, they give us somebody to root against, right? Even if you're anti-live, you just root against them or, you, or you're, it's interesting to see how they fared. Because there was, I think going into the majors this year, there was some interest in seeing how they would perform, 
because they're, you know, when live first came off, you're like, Oh, well, they're only playing these glorified exhibition events or playing in like 10 or 11 events a year. They're going to be rusty. Their game's going to erode. They're not facing real competition. And I think a lot of them made the cut in the masters and contended, you know, and then Kepka won the PJ championship. So in a lot of ways, I think they're doing what, what's in their best interest and they're finding ways to stay sharp. You know, Cameron Smith's still pretty darn good. Brooks Kepka probably better than ever or, or better than he's been in a very long time. So they're, they're competitive golfers. I think they deserve a chance, whether or not you like live or not to compete in these major, these major championships. You know, just reading between the lines on this, the fact and the timing of this at all, that all came out, the head of the PIF, I think he played in the Dunhill links, I think with Peter Dawson. And then, then two days later, this letter came out. It's probably a sign that the framework agreement from June might be crumbling, right? And right. we're hearing rumors and rumblings of that. I think where there's smoke, there's fire around this. Because one of the things is they could have, they could have had just as strongly or nearly as strongly worded language and said, okay, there's a lot of things we don't disagree. We, we disagree with when it comes to live in terms of the structure or whatever, but as a compromise, we're going to rank using these events for a period, say till the end, to the beginning of 2025 or something like that. And it would give live a chance to sort out all of these things. And, you know, if they didn't, then they could pull it but it would give them at least a path forward, sort out some of these elements of the framework agreement, you know, which I think I'm assuming are still trying to get hammered out. And then maybe we just end up in a better place and there's more relegation or whatever. Some of the issues that they raised in the letter, they could have sorted out in time, but still would allow these players to get potentially into the majors. But so the fact that they weren't, they just sort of outright just rejected them and said, yeah, best of luck in the future, you know, keep doing what you're doing. But, uh, you know, you're not in, right? It's yeah. sort of like they're saying, okay, well, you know, make the changes if you want to and we'll reevaluate at that time. Otherwise, like you're out. Yeah, uh, they put the ball it, in their court right now. Yeah, so it just seems like if you think of the framework agreement was in solid footing and had some, had some momentum that they, you know, the powers that be would have maybe put some pressure on Peter Dawson to come up with a more of a compromise solution as opposed to a hard no. The Driven Golf Podcast is produced by Joseph K. If you're looking for more information from Jarrett Phillips, you can go to trainpmt underscore Southlake. You can find Andrew Lewis at Andrew Lewis Golf, or you can find me, Jim Colton, at Driven Golf Analytics. If you enjoyed this episode, please pass it on to a friend or two. We really appreciate it. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode. Until then, remember, in this great game, the journey is the gift. Enjoy the journey.